scripture that Trey has asked me to read this morning is taken from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, out of the New International Version, which is also known as the Great Commission. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you, Jay. Well, good morning. Can you hear me out there? Yeah, maybe? Yes, no? Maybe so? Thumbs up? You hear me all right? All right. If you can't, then uh, maybe you can turn me up in the back. Well, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, I'd uh, implore you to grab them at this point in time. Let's turn to the Gospels, if we will, um, and you can begin in the Gospel of of Mark, excuse me, the second Gospel. We'll kind of be in various Gospels. We'll be in Mark, we'll be in Matthew, but if you want to begin in the Gospel of Mark, that would be a a, a really good place. Mark chapter 3. We are this morning ending our fall sermon series on the spiritual disciplines, looking at various exercises that help us grow in godliness. We have explored over the past nine weeks or so, spiritual disciplines that relate to the Word of God, helping us to to hear God's voice. We've heard about disciplines that relate to prayer, helping us to have God's ear. And then we've explored various disciplines related to being a part of a local church, helping us to belong to God's body. And this morning we come to the last sermon as we've been exploring these corporate disciplines, the corporate discipline of discipleship, or if you'd like to call it disciple-making. Discipleship or disciple-making. I trust that you are close to Mark chapter 3. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. So let's pray together. Father, we pray your blessings upon the preaching and and, uh, teaching and hearing and living out of your word. Father, as we turn to look at this, um, this great mission that your Son has given us to make disciples uh, and to make disciples of all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything that you have commanded us to do. Father, it is a big vision. It is a grand vision that your Son has given us, and yet it is so personal and it is so individual that each of us have a role in this grand design so that all the nations might hear, so that many peoples would come to uh, follow Jesus Christ, to know him first as their Savior, and then to begin to follow him as their Lord. So help us, we pray, as we see our role in this great plan. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said together, amen. If you've ever uh, been to our house, in particular if you've ever been to our backyard, um, you can't miss that we have these two massive trees in our backyard. They're wonderfully placed, kind of right in the middle, and uh, these are, are wonderful old pr- trees, I presume, and their roots, uh, their roots run very deep. Not only do their roots run very deep, but that but they can actually be seen and felt as you walk around our backyard. And so it really, literally pains me to walk around our backyard without shoes on, because these roots not only go deep, but they spread out, and they sometimes just kind of uh, jump up uh, above the surface. Uh, these are old trees, and they have deep roots, but not only do they have deep roots, but their branches extend way out. In fact, one of the things that I most love about our backyard is these two gigantic trees have these branches that just spread their wings so far, and on most uh, periods of the day, provide shade 
for our family and for our kids, uh, pretty much uh, covering the entire backyard. See, as these trees have grown deeper into the ground, they have also grown wider above the ground. As they've grown deeper into the soil, into the dirt, they have grown wider in our backyard. This morning, we're going to be talking about the discipline of discipleship, disciple-making. And I want to use this illustration to make a simple point. Spiritual growth, healthy, vibrant spiritual growth is sort of like these trees in my backyard. Healthy, vibrant spiritual life goes both downwards and outwards. Goes both deep and wide. It grows deeper and it grows wider. See, when a Christian is growing in their relationship with Jesus, they are naturally growing deeper in their desire to obey him and to know him. But simultaneously, right, we also then grow wider. We grow in our desire to join Jesus on his mission called the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations. So healthy spiritual life. If your spiritual life is healthy, if my spiritual life is healthy, we are going deeper in our walk with God and we're going wider out to fulfill his mission. Mathis, again, in his book, says it wonderfully. He says, we will only go so deep with Jesus until we start yearning to reach out. When our life in him is healthy and vibrant, we not only ache to keep sinking our roots deep down in him, but we also want to stretch out our branches and extend his goodness to others. So spiritual life goes deep and it goes wide. And in this way, we can see the the discipline of disciple-making or discipleship, which we'll talk about this morning, is a result. It can be seen as an effect, if you will, of all the other spiritual disciplines that we've talked about, right? In other words, as we grow in our spiritual discipline of Bible study, Bible meditation, right? Uh, uh, Bible, uh, Bible reading, as we grow in our relationship with God and prayer, both together as a community and individually, right? When, when these disciplines are occurring in our life, then what happens then is that we long to reach out. As we grow in these practices, the disciplines we've been talking about, we grow closer to Jesus, and as we do, we inevitably grow a heart for the mission of Jesus as well, right? So, in other words, we grow down and we go up. But not only that, not only is going deeper with Jesus, not only does it lead us to reach out to others to make others disciples. But the very act of reaching out, our very obedience to the Great Commission, our very act of going beyond ourselves might actually even lead us back into a deeper relationship with Jesus. So it's cyclical. In other words, getting on the Great Commission bandwagon, if you will, to make disciples may actually be the very thing that God uses to push our spiritual roots even further into the ground, to awake us from a spiritual lethargy or to jumpstart, if you will, our sanctification, our growth in holiness. There's a pastor up north at a, from a rather large church by the name of Bill Hybels, and uh, he's written a book called Becoming a Contagious Christian. And in that book, he comments on the effect that sharing the gospel, being a witness of Jesus, going on the Great Commission, can actually have on our own spiritual life. Let's read this together. He says, I often meet Christians who are in a spiritual malaise holding to their faith, but not advancing it much. He says, Bible study has become a chore. 
Prayer is a dry routine. The miracle of their own conversion, once recounted with great compassion, is now a distant, fading memory. And going to churches, well, is something they just do. He writes, mechanically and half-heartedly, these people trudge along through the drudgery of quarantined Christianity. Isn't that good language? Quarantined Christianity. But, he says, but when these lethargic believers break out of a spiritual isolation and and they meet some, some spiritual seekers, he says something incredible starts to happen. As they experience the high stakes conversations that tend to happen with unchurched people, they begin to notice a sort of inner renewal taking place. He says areas long ignored suddenly come alive with fresh significance. And then he ends by saying this, isn't it incredible how elevating our own, our efforts to reach others can be a catalyst for personal growth? I don't know about you, but the words of Bill Heibel describes me more often than I would like to admit. I don't know about you. His words are incredibly true, right? But there's more. There's more to this equation. Not only can sharing our faith, the gospel, spark spiritual growth within us, but coming alongside then other Christians, other believers, to help them grow and follow Christ can also be a tool of our own sanctification, a a tool of of our own growth. Stephen Smallman, in his small book, The Way, says this. He says, Our involvement in making disciples will be one of the most significant things we can do for our own growth as disciples. So, living on mission with Jesus is not only then an effect of God's grace coming to us through the channels of the disciplines we've talked about already, but it may also actually be a means an avenue of God's grace to advance our own spiritual lives as well. So here's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time this morning. I want to ask and answer two questions related to discipleship or disciple-making. First, what is disciple-making or discipleship? What is discipleship? Secondly, we will look at how disciple-making then is a means of grace for the ones doing the discipleship. How does God use this process to make us more like Jesus Christ? So what is it, and how is it a means of grace to us? Well, let's begin with definitions. What do we mean when we talk about discipleship or disciple-making? Well, in the New Testament, there's this Greek term, and it's found in the Gospels mostly, and it's the term translated disciple. So when you see this term in Greek, methetes, uh, it's often translated disciple. It's, it's a very simple word. It simply refers to one who is a learner. It refers to one specifically who learns from a master or a teacher, right? So this term, disciple, to be a disciple specifically of Christ, simply means that we are his pupil. And we come to him to learn from him as our teacher, as our rabbi, if you will. Disciple-making, the process of disciple-making, begins. It begins when a person comes to understand the gospel. When they realize the biblical truth and believe that though God created them to, to both know him personally and to obey him and to live for his glory, though God made us for himself, our sin has separated us from God. We have become alienated from him, if you will. Our fellowship with him is broken. And as a result, God's eternal wrath and anger rests upon every person. 
then the person realizes not only that, but they come to the place that the Bible simply refers to as repentance. They turn around, quite literally, from sin and from self and from self-righteousness, and they trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone as their Savior, the one who paid the penalty for their sins. He lived perfectly for us. He died in our place for our sins, and he offers us eternal life. And at that point, when the person accepts this gospel, this good news of Jesus, a miracle happens. Conversion happens. New life is is given. A person, the Bible says, is born again. They become a new creature in Christ. And they begin to accept, they, 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 they trust in Jesus as their Savior, and then they begin to follow him. They have become a learner of Jesus. They've placed their faith in Jesus as a Savior, and they have become, quite literally, a disciple of Christ. This is where discipleship begins. There is no other place that it begins other than this. So friends, let me ask you a very personal and pertinent question. The most important question maybe you'll ever be asked Have you come to be a disciple of Jesus Christ by personally trusting in him and what he has done for you as your Savior and then begun to follow him as your Lord? That is the most vital question anyone can ever be asked. And how you answer that question in your heart of hearts, eternity hinges upon that answer. So discipleship, It begins when we come into a relationship with God. We become a follower, a learner of Jesus. Friends, if you have embarked on that journey, if you have trusted Jesus as as your Savior, you've embarked on that journey of discipleship with Him, right? You've you've done that. But, But you're not doing it alone, right? We don't live the Christian life. We're not a disciple of Jesus all alone. We do it in the context of community. And not only that, but we've been given this task as disciples. We come to know him through faith in Christ. We become his disciple. And then we are tasked by Jesus, as we will see just in a minute, to make other disciples of Jesus, right? So, what is disciple making? Again, Mathis offers us a very simple and helpful explanation. He says this in his book. He says, discipleship is the process in which a maturing believer invests himself or herself for a particular period of time in one or just a few younger believers. Towards what end? In order to help them grow in their faith, including helping them also to invest in others, who will then invest in others. A wonderful depiction, I think, of the biblical process of discipleship, of disciple-making. It's when a maturing Christian decides to invest themselves in a uh, younger Christian in order to help them grow in their walk with Jesus and then to invest them to the point where then they can take on a disciple of their own so that they then can help another person grow to know Jesus and to love Jesus. And the process goes on and on and on. So when we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at what we see in the Gospels in particular— we see this discipleship process that Mathis just articulated come to life. We see it in the Gospels, right? Jesus took 12 men. He called them apostles. And he did this very process. He, Jesus, being the godliest man ever, right? Because he was God-man. 
he invested in 12 men for a particular period of time. How long was Jesus with these 12, roughly? About three years or so, right? He invested in them in order to help them grow in their faith in him. And what was his goal? His goal was to then send them out to make disciples of all nations, right? So while we don't have time to go specifically into Jesus' uh, disciple-making process in the Gospels, I simply want to point out a very, um, a very common, a very simple trend that we see in the Gospels. This pattern emerges, this discipleship pattern emerges in the Gospel. And I want to point it out because we can follow it in our own life and in our own church. So, first of all, the first step, the first thing we see Jesus doing in the Gospels is he invited people to be with him. He invited people to spend time with him so that he could invest in them, right? Next, he sent them out. He impelled them to go out from him so that they then could invest in other people for him. So first, he invested, right? He invested in them first, and then he impelled them to go out second. You could say first came the minutes spent with him, then came the mission for him. You see the simple process that we see in the Gospels. So we see this pattern in Mark chapter 3. So I hope you're there. Mark chapter 3. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. Page 814 if you're in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 3 verses, uh, actually verses 13 and 14, excuse me. Verses 13 and 14. Here we see it's early on, early in Jesus's three-year specific ministry, and he chooses 12 men who would eventually become his disciples. Notice this pattern. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. So do we see this simple pattern emerging in the life of Jesus? Yes, we do, right? First comes the disciples being with him. Then he would send them out for him. We see this pattern emerge also in the Gospel of Matthew. So turn with me backwards. You're, if you're in Mark, go uh, to your left, uh, and we will turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We see this as well in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to turn there, you can. You can look on the screen behind me. Ma- Matthew chapter 4. We see this pattern emerging as well. Specifically, we see this pattern in Jesus' initial invitation to Peter and Andrew, brothers, to become one of his disciples. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 20. At once... They left their nets, and they followed him. Now notice the order. We see this simple pattern emerging again, right? It's significant. Jesus said, come, follow me first, right? That they might become his disciple. And then, what was he going to do? Come, follow me, be my disciple. Then I will send you out to fish for people, right? To be fishers of men. He invested in them, and then he sent them out. Moving on in the same gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Turn with me to chapter 11. So just turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 11. We see this same pattern emerging. Matthew chapter 11, and you can take a look at uh, verses 28 through 30. 
Matthew chapter 11. As we move on to the Gospel of Matthew, we see this pattern uh, occurring again. And here in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we see Jesus offering an invitation of discipleship. Jesus is inviting people to become a follower of him. So we have the invitation part focused on here. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This wonderfully pictured invitation of Jesus for people to come follow him, to be a learner from him. Dr. Dr. Mark Bailey, he's the president of Dallas Seminary. He calls this particular passage the invitation to communion. As Jesus invites people to commune with him, to, to be with him, this image that we see here of the oxen, right, is from ancient Israel where they would take a well-trained and well-tamed oxen, and they would link that ox then with an untrained, untamed, younger oxen, and they would, ye- they would link them together with a yoke. So imagine this image that Jesus is portraying, right? A, a tamed, older, well-trained ox with a, a wild, untrained, untamed oxen with a yoke between them. The idea is that the younger would learn from the older, right? So let me, let me ask a question. In this context, out of the two, which do you think is a picture of Jesus? The older, right? The well-trained, the, the tamed, if you will, oxen is a picture of Jesus. So then, which one is a picture for me and you? <laughs> the unflattering one, right? The wild oxen, the young one, the one that needs instruction, the one that needs help, the one that needs to learn. And so we are linked with Jesus, so to speak, by this yoke. So let me ask you another question, getting back to the oxen. When will the yoke of the younger oxen be easy and light? When will it be easy and light? Remember, Jesus uses this image, right? He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. He says, I am gentle. I am humble. And you will find rest for your souls. And he says, if you take this yoke of being my disciple, what is it going to be like for you? He says, my yoke, it's easy. And my burden is light. So in the picture, when is it easy, right? For the younger oxen. When is it easy and light? Only when that oxen is going at the same pace, into the same place as the well-tamed one. Do you get the image? Only when the younger goes the same pace into the same place as the older. Now, what does that mean for you and I? When we become disciples of Jesus, when is our burden easy? And when is our burden light? Well, we have to be going at the same pace that Jesus is. And here's a key one. We have to be going the same direction as Jesus, right? What a wonderful picture of discipleship that we get here. So in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 11, there is this invitation to become a disciple. 
But once these men take that invitation and they become disciples, what is the eventual goal? Well, look ahead with me to the end of the gospel. Very familiar passage. Jay just read it. Matthew chapter 28. We fast forward all the way to the end of the book. Jesus dies. Jesus is raised from the dead, right? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. He's spent time with these men. He's, he's, uh, uh, he, they've taken his yoke upon themselves, if you will. And then what happens? Well, we get this wonderful commission. We'll read it again, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Again, Dr. Bailey calls this particular passage in Matthew 28 the imperative of commission. The imperative of commission. The command to go, right? So notice what we see in Matthew. First comes the invitation to communion. Come and be with me. Come and be with me. And then there is the imperative of commission. Go out and witness, be Make disciples in in all the nations. That's why Dr. Bailey summarizes these two passages in this way, this principle for us. He says, being with Jesus in the school of discipleship always precedes going on the mission of disciple making, right? There's an order here. Being with Jesus in the school of discipleship always precedes going on the mission of disciple making. So it goes without saying then, that when we are involved in helping other people follow Jesus, it is a great means of transforming grace to the person who is being discipled. So if you were Peter or James or John or Andrew or any of the disciples, it would have been a tremendous means of God's grace to you that Jesus was your uh, discipler, right? And the same is true in any discipleship relationship. For me, I was invested in, um, after I became a Christian at 15 or so, maybe 16, I was invested in by a whole host of people. And it was a great avenue of God's grace to me. I am so grateful for Billy Cash, who is one of my best friends, and he was a year older than me, but he had been a Christian for many, many years. And he showed me what it was like to follow Jesus. I grew tremendously because of him. When I was in college, I think of this group of men that I gathered with, college students, and we studied the Bible together, and they invested in me. I think of being in a Bible study with um, the Grace Bible Church. They're in, they're in a, a, a college station. There's another one somewhere down in Texas, and I, was in a, I, was, I went to that church, and, and they had Bible studies, and I had the great opportunity to be in a Bible study with uh, Brian Fisher, who's the pastor there, his dad. Uh, Dr. Fisher, Doc, as we would call him. And uh, I had the great privilege of being in one of his Bible studies. And he, as a 60-plus uh, older man, uh, was just, he poured into us, young whippersnappers. And he taught us, and he challenged us. And how much grace I was given by God through that. But, but of course, it goes both ways. Because as I was being poured into, hopefully, most of the time, really not knowing it, I was actually pouring into other people. I had a roommate, and uh, for the last two years that I was in college, and his name was Greg, and he was a good friend. Uh, he was a good roommate. Uh, he was two or three years younger than me, and uh, good guy. 
um, I didn't have it in mind that as we were living together in college that I was somehow going to be his discipler. It just wasn't in my mind. I, I ran into him um, maybe a year or two ago when we were back in Texas for Christmas break. We were at Chick-fil-A. And uh, it, it's a wonderful place to take your kids because they have these indoor play areas. And so we went there often. And so we were playing, and uh, lo and behold, Greg is there. And he has his wife, and he has his kids. And uh, I was able to catch up with him. I hadn't seen him in years, and, and uh, it was good to, to do that. I just want to give you a, a tidbit of that conversation. As Greg was introducing me to his wife, he said, Honey, and, and please, I'm, I really don't want to be proud of this, he was like, honey, this is one of the three most influential people in my entire Christian life. He just said it out of the blue. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, it just struck me. I was like, what are you talking about? We live together, you know? Like, we ate pizza together and watched Sports Center. I don't know how that was discipleship. But, you know, uh, and he was like, he was like, yeah, I mean, every morning Trey would get up and read his Bible. And I just, I saw that, you know? And I, and I saw him serve in the local church and this, this that, and the other. And, and he, I was like... Greg, I, I just humble. I, what would I say to that? And the point is not to elevate myself. The point is simply this. We, we need a discipler, right? We need people to pour into us. And that is a great means of grace. But we also need to be pouring into others. So, a couple application points. The place we begin in disciple making is being an active disciple of Jesus ourselves. So if we want to then be a discipler, right? We then naturally need to become be a disciple of Jesus ourselves, As A.W. Tozer, the great Christian writer, once said, only a disciple can make a disciple, right? In other words, if you want to teach other people how to follow Jesus, you need to follow Jesus yourself, right? That's simple. So, question. Are you taking the yoke of Jesus' teachings, his example, and his life through his word daily upon yourself, seeking to keep in step both with his pace and his place? See, we can't be effective disciples of others if we are not seeking to be a faithful disciple of Jesus ourselves. Next. Next. We should consider if we are actively involved in discipling other disciples. You may know it. You may not know it. But are you involved in this kind of relationship? And if not, why not? Let me just paint this picture for you in a minute. What might God do in a local church. What might God do in our local church if, for instance, every man over 50 had a younger man under his wing and they were meeting fairly regularly? They were studying the Bible together. They were praying together. They were sharing life together. He was having questions asked of him, right? He was teaching this young man how to do his job and how to be a dad and how to be a father and how to be a husband. What might happen? What might happen if every woman, say over 50, had a younger woman under her wing to help her with her career or her parenting or her marriage or her friendships or whatever might be on her mind? What if every high schooler had a junior high or an elementary student developing a relationship so that they can learn, hopefully, what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus in Cisna Park schools? What would a discipleship culture look like And how could it change us? Well, what is disciple-making? Disciple-making is simply this. Disciple-making is simply following Jesus ourselves and then being invested in by somebody more mature than us and then investing in somebody maybe a little uh, 
less down the road than we are. So, second question. How is disciple-making a means of grace? So I think it's pretty clear. When we are a discipler, and there's a disciple-e, if you will, it's a great means of grace to that disciple-e, that we come alongside them. How is it, how might God use that relationship to then change us, if we are the one doing the discipling, right? In his book, Habits of Grace, Mathis suggests three or four ways, and I'll add a couple of my own. Number one, disciple-making is a means of grace to the discipler in several ways. Let me suggest some. Number one, it shows us our smallness and God's bigness. So we need to think about this discipleship relationship we've talked about um, in in relationship to God's bigger plan, his global purpose. Campus outreach ministry on colleges all across America have, it has this slogan, and I think it's helpful. They say, think big, start small, and go deep. Think big, start small, and go deep, right? It's a good way for us to approach the Great Commission. So think big, first of all. Think big. God's global purposes and plan to disciple all the nations. So we have that in mind. But then we start small. We focus on just a few disciples at a time. That's exactly what Jesus did. And then we go deep. We invest personally at a depth to equip that person then to make other disciples, right? So we think big, and we start small, and we go deep. In fact, Coleman, in his wonderful book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, said this. He says, one cannot transform a world except as individuals in the world are transformed, right? So we think big, but we have a role in this. Second, it challenges us to be holistic Christians. If we then want to take on somebody to uh, mentor, we have to be holistic Christians, right? We have to be both relational with them and intentional, both social and strategic. So it takes planning, right? And it takes purpose. It takes play, and sharing your favorite pastime. Again, as Mathis says, it's not just friend to friend. It's not just teacher to student. It's both. Holistic. There is a sharing of ordinary life and a seeking to initiate and make the most of teachable moments. So we need both. Discipleship is both organic and engineered. He says it's relational and intentional with shared context. We share life together. And shared content. There's information being disseminated, both quality and quantity time. So if we are going to enter into that kind of relationship with people, it will help us be holistic Christians. Number three, it makes us more aware of our sinfulness when we enter into this kind of relationship. And friend, don't kid yourself. That's a good thing, right? That's a good grace of God. When we enter into that kind of relationship, not only do we teach them the truth, but we share our very lives with them. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So, I'm sure you've noticed this in all of your relationships. When lives are shared together, when sinners rub up with each other, with increasing frequency and intimacy, the more our sin and the more their sin comes out. Right? Is that not true? In every relationship. In a discipleship relationship, it's increasingly difficult to be fake, to wear a mask, or to keep some kind of Christian facade up. So in this kind of relationship, we get the privilege to teach our disciple if you will, 
Something that Jesus never got to teach his. What is that? How to repent, right? How to repent. We get to model for them how to say I'm sorry. How to be honest with our own sin struggles. How to both give and hear a confession. How to eagerly pursue change when we struggle in a particular area of sin. It makes us more aware of our sinfulness. And number four, it makes us die to ourselves. If we enter into this kind of relationship with someone, it helps us die to ourselves. Specifically, we must die to our selfishness with our time, with our space, and with our resources, right? Not only that, but we die to our precious privacy, this precious thing that we love so much, our our privacy. We die to that because in disciple-making, We need to figure out how to live life together to share not only the gospel with them, but our very lives, as Paul says. So disciple-making, then, is a means of of great grace to the discipler because it helps us to fulfill Jesus' command to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and to follow him. Finally, it, it teaches us to lean heavier on Jesus. It teaches us to lean heavier on Jesus. So when we agree to mentor a younger believer, we very quickly come to the realization of our own inadequacies. Very quickly. We realize we can't do this on our own. We realize we are a flawed model and a flawed mentor. That's why Jesus is the real discipler, right? He's the real discipler, and we're just helping a younger Christian become like him. I I talked with my mom this week. Uh, My mom is uh, a... She's a godly woman, and she lives in a college town. And for her, it's a, it's, a, it's a great blessing because one of the things she loves to do is to take young college girls and to, to just be men, a mentor to them, so to speak. Um, and I think at the moment, she's got about three or four going at the same time, which is quite a bit. And she meets with them pretty regularly, and they talk, and they live life together, and she teaches them. And so I called her up, and I said, Mom, I'm doing this sermon, and this is you. So help me, you know. Like, how, how is that relationship a means of God's grace to you. And uh, really the one thing that she kept harking on was that she's like, when I tell the girls, I'll mentor you, but Jesus is really going to be the mentor here, right? He's the model. He's the example. I'm a flawed, flawed thing. And she said, it makes me lean on God so much more because I don't know what to say. I've never been in their shoes. How do I handle these things? And it drives her to her knees to lean heavier on Jesus. And that's that's what disciple-making does, right? It will be struck with our failures with them. We will fail to love them well. We will fail at times to initiate with them. We will fail to be clear with them. We will fail to follow through sometimes or to pray with them. We'll fail, right? But it's a great act of grace because in all of those failures, we turn afresh to Jesus for strength and for wisdom and for transformation. So, here's how I'd like to close our time with the words of a German pastor of about a hundred years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor who opposed Hitler during World War II, and uh, he lost his life at his hands. He once said this. He said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And that has always struck me. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. So friends, I don't want me or you or any of us to pursue a Christless Christianity, right? 
We need to be involved in the disciple-making process, one person at a time. So we're going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read together the words of this Great Commission. So let's pray first. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts and in our midst to be a part of your global plan. And it is a global plan, but it involves us here, right now, in Cisna Park, wherever we live, that we might both be involved in following you, becoming your disciple, and then allowing others to invest in us, that we might then invest in others. And the chain would continue. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.